transformed for the sake of Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So now we get to invite up District Superintendent Monty Wright. Um, he gets to be here. Yeah, he gets to be here by nature of his role. Like you get invited to these things, right? It's kind of like, yeah, oh, there's another birthday I got to go to. Um, but uh, we care about honoring people here. And so I just want you to know a couple of things about Monty. One, I mean, I, I could have read his biography. So, I mean, church planter extraordinaire, church revitalizer, Bible college founderer. Um, and then all the things he's done at the, the district level and, and the leadership. But um, he is a scholar uh, who loves Jesus and loves to apply his mind to the truth of God. But he's a practitioner. So he wants to take that stuff and communicate it to us in a way that equips us for ministry and changes our lives. Um, and when we were planning for this day, I was just like, I just want Monty's heart to be heard. Um, he's a scholar of E.B. Simpson, so he studies and loves everything about the founder of the denomination. He knows and has given so much of his life to helping the Christian and Missionary Alliance in this part of the world. Uh, and so I'm just so blessed that you're here. Thank you for your leadership of the district. Uh, thank you for your scholarship and all the investment in the next generation. And in particular, thank you for the way as I talk to the other pastors in the district, you come alongside us and love and support and give so much to us. We deeply appreciate it. So. Thanks, buddy. Well, good morning, Arise. Good to see you all. And what a amazingly awesome day today is to celebrate 50 years. Uh, as I was even driving over here, I was thinking back to uh, particularly the last church that I planted, uh, which was Snoqualmie Valley Alliance. And uh, it was at Canby Grove Family Camp at Canby Grove. And uh, someone... You might remember that this name, but someone committed to praying for Amy and I from this church and was diligent about that, and that was Fran Owen. And um, I remember Fran saying to me uh, one of the years at, at family camp, because I would do the baptisms at family camp every year, and she was always the first one chair down by the, 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 the Malala uh, waiting for that. And she said, thank you for planting an alliance church. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and she was always um, faithful. Uh, faithful, faithful. And of course, Tim was uh, in, back in the day not too far away from me when we had planted in Issaquah, Washington, and, and then out in Snoqualmie Valley. But, so there have been prayers for me from this body of believers for a long time. So from me to you, thank you. Thank you for your prayer investment. And it is so beautiful to walk in here this morning and to see prayer happening and to see people listening to the voice of the Spirit. Because if the CNMA is about anything, it is about the deeper life of the Holy Spirit empowering us for mission. If there are two things we can say, what's the Christian Missionary Alliance about? It's about understanding who we are, being filled, baptized in the Holy Spirit, not just for our own experience, but for that power for ministry so that this world can be transformed and that the King Jesus Christ would return sooner than later. Are you with me on that? Amen. Yeah. So it's exciting for me to be with you as you not only remember today, 
but you look forward. And to start us off, I want to I first talk about a young man. One Christmas, he's heading back to his hometown in a small Bavarian village. The year is 1684. As he goes back to his village in Bavaria that year, bringing various gifts for his family, he also brought another gift with him that he didn't know he was carrying. You might remember what happened back in the 1600s, particularly this young man brings back to his small village, uh, unfortunately, the bubonic plague, the black plague. This village had been safe and free from experiencing the effects that was ravaging Europe at that time. And then all of a sudden, the next day, a person comes back, and the next day, another. And so the village elders gathered, and they prayed, and they said, what should we do? And so they did what so many of us do in situations where we are not in control. They cut a deal with God. They said, God, if you would keep this plague from affecting us, we will remember you and celebrate you throughout all the generations in the future of this town. It was probably a very desperate plea, but an understandable plea. The interesting thing is no one else got sick. And that little village stayed true to their vow or covenant by saying every 10 years what we're going to do is we're going to pull together and do the play of the, the, the death of Jesus Christ, the passion play. That little village is called Oberammergau. Many of you might have heard about it. They have for every 10 years since 1684 been putting on a passion play celebrating the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ to fulfill a covenant that they made with God that if he would intervene and save their village. And what's interesting, this is still going on today. Funny thing is, the only time they had a miss was during COVID. <laughs> it's like, huh, they had to, they had to cancel, that. <laughs> cancel that year. They, they had pushed it off a year. That's another sermon for another day, though. Um, and so, uh, as, as you look at this, uh, this covenant that was made by these people is very profound. Uh, interesting thing happened in that Passion Play, I think it was 1984, 1985. They're doing the Passion Play, and these parts that the players play have been generational. So if your great-great-great-grandfather was a centurion, you're a centurion. So, you know, I wonder who's playing the holy family because they must be like rock stars, you know, in the village still. But in, in 1984, they get to the most powerful scene in this play, which is the ascension of Jesus. And they have Jesus. He's rigged with counterweights and balances. So he's going he's gonna to ascend up into the air. And right before the ascension happens, one of the Roman guards falls asleep. He nods off, and he's holding one of those big staves with the sword on top. It falls, and it slices Jesus' calf. And so in the middle of the play, they start to scurry. They get Jesus unhooked off and the understudy Jesus in and rigged up for the ascension scene. You can probably imagine the stress of the moment. 
So the scene continues with understudy Jesus, and he starts the ascension, and he starts to go up. But about halfway, he stalls out because they hadn't taken into account that the understudy Jesus was a little more stout than the previous Jesus. So he gets about halfway up, he stalls, and he starts to come back down. (laughs) And another thing, right, you know? (laughs) And so while he's coming back down, they are freaking out in the back, and so they are trying to compensate for the weight, and then they overcompensate, and Jesus, he is just out of there. That's one of those days, you've been there, (laughs) extra grace is required. (laughs) Extra grace is required. We We have come through and in some ways we are still in a season where extra grace has been required. We have seen that discipleship has not gone as deeply in the church as we thought it had, as churches have divided over very rudimentary and basic things. We have preferred ourselves over our neighbor. We have followed worldly ways rather than kingdom ways. We have found our place where we have stopped being the givers and the portals of grace and we have focused more on our own rights and our own needs. If it means anything to follow Jesus, it means laying your rights down for another. We have lacked that. We have lacked the concept of grace in the church in the U.S. Grace is the centerpiece of the fourfold gospel. Christ our Savior, Christ our Sanctifier, Christ our Healer, and Christ our Coming King. To be chosen and held by Jesus is grace. Nothing you did for him to take you. To grow in the knowledge of Jesus, Christ our sanctifier, to be set apart from darkness and sin to life and beauty and abundance and purpose is grace. Because you didn't do anything to deserve the way God uses you in the lives of so many people. To experience Christ as healer, part of the covenant family. You belong to Jesus and there is provision in the atoning work of Jesus Christ for health and life in your body. And it's grace that we pray Jesus doesn't tarry too long and returns to establish his millennial reign on this kingdom. It is the centerpiece of the fourfold gospel. It is the centerpiece of the gospel, grace. But to understand grace, we have to understand another term which Ober Amergel did, and that was covenant. When I started to understand the concept of covenant in my life, that's when everything changed for me. And there's one story in the scriptures I'd like to walk us through this morning that unpacked for me and revealed to me the power of covenant, the concept of covenant, helping me understand who I was, who Jesus is, why I need the Spirit breath by breath, and why I'm thankful to the Father. Now, the story I'd like to walk through is about a guy Some of you, I'm sure, have heard his name. Others, this might be a new name, and the reason you may not have heard about him is because his name is hard to pronounce. And his story is actually rather short. His name is Mephibosheth. I got an O over here. (laughs) Mephibosheth's story, however, 
starts long before Mephibosheth is born. If you have your Bibles, would you open up to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 18? We're going to start with a couple other names which everyone will recognize. King Saul, Prince Jonathan, and at this point, a young David who has just recently slew the giant Goliath. And as we start in chapter 18, we see on the tail end of this incredible victory of David over Goliath and then King Saul bringing David into his household, David becomes fast friends with Prince Jonathan, King Saul's son. And so we start to read in verse 1, chapter 18, this. After David had finished with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and he gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. It's an interesting verse. What's going on? Why are David and Jonathan, why is he taking off his robe, his tunic, his belt, his weapons? What is he doing here? Well, we often read through so much, particularly in the Old Testament, without understanding what is actually happening in the background here. If you were of a Middle Eastern persuasion, you would understand really quickly that these are not all, but some of the elements that were involved in establishing a covenant with one another. These are covenant movements here. And so there are a number of covenant moves I'd just like to share with you because they're, they're profound and they, they are the gateway to remembering the greatest covenant. But in this place, remembering a covenant that is happening between these two people. So there are these series of exchanges. So the first exchange was an exchange of robes. Why is that significant, you might ask? The robe was representative. The robe represented all of your wealth. It represented your household. It represented that should you ever need a place to stay, mi casa es su casa, right? My house is your house. So if you ever need anything because we've entered into covenant together, what I have is yours. And guess what? Those two people, what they have belongs to you should you ever have that need. This is profound. Also, there are shadows of what would be embedded in the marriage covenant to come because this is what happens when a man and a woman come together in the oneness of the covenant of marriage. Two become one. Two households become one. What's yours is mine. What's mine is yours. Everything becomes one pot, so to speak. Now, the second exchange that would happen would be uh, after the robes, an exchange of weapons. What is significant about that? This one gets maybe a little more intense. It means your enemies are now my enemy, and my enemies are now your enemy. Think about the significance of this covenant with David and Jonathan, because David had many enemies in his life, including Jonathan's dad. Jonathan had many enemies by being a prince under King Saul with many nations around him. For them to enter into covenant together was substantial. 
That means I will fight with you, I will stand by you, even if you make a mistake, even if you make a dumb move sometimes. I will be with you. That's a foxhole friend. You know the difference, right? You have some friends who are with you. If you do things the way they think you should, then they bail on you the moment you make a choice that you think you should, but they disagree with. That's not a covenant friend. That's a fair weather friend. I, I see this true in, in marriage. There is someone that would love to destroy your marriage, the accuser of the brethren. Husbands, you should be praying for your wife moment by moment, breath by breath. Wives, you should be praying for your husbands, moment by moment and breath by breath. Protect each other. Stand in the gap for each other. Maybe you should exchange weapons tonight when you get home. I don't know. (laughs) There was also an exchange of names. So Jonathan would have taken maybe a part of his name or his middle name, given it to David. David would have taken a part of his name, given it to Jonathan. We see this in Genesis 17 when God is establishing covenant with a man named Abram. Abram would later be called what? Abraham. So what happened? There's an exchange of names. God takes the predominant portion of his name, Yahweh, and adds it to Abram. So Abram becomes Abraham. Sarai, his wife becomes Sarah. Abraham becomes known as a friend of God. There is an exchange of names. There is also an exchange of blood. Very interesting. So David would have cut somewhere on his arm, maybe his palm, as with Jonathan. They would have then intermingled their blood. We actually believe that this is where the tradition of blood brothers came from, was from Middle East covenant cutting. And so they would have intermingled their blood, but that wasn't the end of it. After that, they would have taken some dirt, moss, and irritant, and they would have put it in the wound so that the wound would get infected. And then at the end of the infection, it would leave a scar so that every time they saw a scar, they would be reminded, oh, I entered into a covenant with someone. In many ways, there's your wedding ring. Every time you look down at your hand, you are reminded by that raised ring that you entered into a covenant with someone so that you should be praying diligently for them, right? After that, there would be the sacrifice which would seal the covenant, So they would take an animal and they would cut the animal in half and the animal would be set on the ground and the two people entering into covenant, so David and Jonathan in our case, they would walk through the pieces of the covenant in a figure-eight fashion. And so what does this signify? So as they're walking through these covenant pieces, this was significant in that it meant, may it be to either of us as it is to this animal, should either of us break or not fulfill our end of the covenant. In other words, if I don't hold up my end of the covenant, death. Here's what else is significant. As you, as you look back at Genesis chapter 15, and uh, as we're looking through those chapters 15 to 17, when God is establishing this covenant with Abram, we see Abram doing this. He gets the animal. He cuts it in half. He assumes he's going to be walking through the pieces. But right before he is about to, the text tells us in Genesis 15 that God puts Abram into a deep sleep. And then God alone, moves through the covenant pieces in the form of a smoking pot of fire. Why is that significant? 
the promises in that covenant that God was establishing with Abraham was the future Messiah. That means your salvation was a part of that covenant. Had Abraham walked through the pieces, he would have blown it by the next week. And none of us in this room would have been able to receive the grace of salvation and beauty and forgiveness and healing and abundance and purpose. All of those pieces that are bound in the cross of Jesus Christ. God alone goes through those covenant pieces. In other words, he's saying this covenant is not about your faithfulness. This is about my faithfulness. This isn't about your perfection or you doing it right. This is about my character, my integrity, and me doing it right. I will do this for you because this is a decreed moment where God is moving to secure the salvation for all who would believe, and that is grace. And it's embedded inside covenant They would have a couple more pieces to this. They would have a a, a covenant meal, uh, and the covenant meal would be two items. What do you think the covenant meal would have been in those days? Bread and wine. Another foreshadow of the ultimate covenant to come. And they would also, at the the end, they would have uh, the blessings, the covenantal blessings, And so it would be the two males would stand and they would pronounce blessings of this covenant to all future generations because they said that the the seed of future generations was in the male. So they would stand and, and, and bless the future generations. In other words, any descendant of theirs, a thousand years later, two thousand years later, would be recipients of this covenant by virtue of their birth. Not by anything they did, but by virtue of their birth. This is what's happening in 1 Samuel 18 as David and Jonathan begin to enter into covenant with each other. What I want you to do now is fast forward, so flip over to 2 Samuel chapter 4. And and a very significant event happens in 2 Samuel 4. As we hit this time frame, David has spent some time on the run from King Saul. There's a lot of story that's happened. But as we enter into 2 Samuel, we see that King Saul and Prince Jonathan have been killed in battle at Mount Gilboa. News of their death begins to spread everywhere. David hears of it and he mourns. Other people Military leaders also hear about it, and they begin to plot and scheme, knowing David has been in the wings, waiting to be thrown. Everyone in the kingdom knew David had been anointed. They were just waiting for the time, right? So a couple military leaders think, huh, we know David's going to ascend the throne. Here's our opportunity. If we go and eliminate all of the heirs of King Saul... David's going to see that we're committed to him and he'll give us high positions in the new kingdom. And so that's what they did. It was carnage. They went in to the palace and they began just slaughtering everybody. And in chapter 4, as, as we read,
When Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage and all of Israel became alarmed. Saul's son had two men who were leaders of raiding bands. One was Bna and the other was Rechab. They were sons of Rimon, the Berahite from the tribe of Benjamin. They began to kill every potential heir. But look at verse 4. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. In the midst of this carnage, this nurse who's responsible for this young Prince Mephibosheth sees it, sees what's happening, picks him up, protects him, starts to run. Somehow she drops him. Must have been a pretty substantial drop for him to be crippled in both his feet for the rest of his life because of this drop. But that's exactly what happens. Now, as you read through the story, David was not pleased with these two guys. As they come to David thinking they're going to get these expanded uh, positions in the kingdom, David summarily executed them, which could bring you to a moment. Have you ever noticed the Bible gets a little dark when you're reading through? (laughs) Here's what I love about the scriptures. God doesn't hide who we are from ourselves in the scriptures, but rather He shows us who we are and why we are in such desperate need of grace. He doesn't give us this text to say, here's how you should live. He gives us this text to say, here's how humans do live, but I have a better way. And so in the midst of this story, we we get Mephibosheth, who's lame. The story continues. Obviously, David ascends the throne. If you'd fast forward to chapter 9 really quick, we see about 20 years later, while David is on the throne, and he makes these series of statements, which I'd like to unpack a bit as we come to to a, a major idea in the text. David's on the throne 20 years later from that moment. And he says these words, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Did you catch that? Is there anyone left in the household of Saul I can bless because of the covenant that I established with Jonathan? Because it's generational. And so, uh, interesting, this says, now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. Ziba has now joined David's palace. And he's been with David for 20 years. Ziba, so they call him to appear before David, and David says to him, are you Ziba? Yes, I'm Ziba. The king asks, is there no one still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba gets a direct question and he gives a direct answer and he says, yes, there is. For 20 years he has known of Prince Jonathan. He has never mentioned it to David. Continue to read that verse. He knows his name and he knows that he's created. He knows everything about Mephibosheth. 
There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in both of his feet. So Ziba wasn't sure, probably even himself, if David didn't call for that carnage. And he's protecting the last heir of King Saul, even from inside the new regime. David is excited about this because of his covenant with Jonathan. He says, so where is he? And now we see Ziba not only knows he's a son of Jonathan, that he's crippled in both his feet, he knows exactly where he's at. He says, he's at the house of Mahir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. And does that not just sound like the most ominous place? He's like an arch cape somewhere between Cannon Beach and Tillamook, right? You know, he's hiding out somewhere out there. So he even knows where he's at. So King David had him brought from Lodabar from the house of Machir and some of Amiel. Now for 20 years, Mephibosheth has been in hiding. And one day, the royal chariot shows up in front of his house. What do you think he's thinking? Ah, finally. Well, the jig's up. I've been pretty stressed for the last 20 years, waiting for David to find me. I imagine 20 years of him hearing from five years old, you know, if it wasn't for David, you would be the king over Israel right now. I can hear that nurse saying, you know, if it wasn't for David, your legs wouldn't be broken and dysfunctional. You know, if it wasn't for David, you'd be eating the choicest foods from the palace rather than the scraps that we're eating in hiding out here. If it wasn't for David, if it wasn't for David, if it wasn't for David, if it wasn't for David. And I imagine the bitterness that probably grew inside of Mephibosheth and his nurse for all of these years while they're in hiding. And I believe as we look at this next portion of text, it bears that out exactly. So, the royal chariot shows up. They pick up Mephibosheth. They bring him to David. And verse 6 says, When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay honor. David is excited. Notice this in the English, but you do in the, in the Hebrew, where he's just Mephibosheth. There's joy as he expounds his name. Mephibosheth, face to the ground, your servant. David notices something's off. So his next words are those three famous words in the Bible. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul. That is substantial. And you will always eat at the king's table. Wow. But Mephibosheth isn't receiving this. He's still waiting for the other shoe to drop. He bows down and he says this, and this is our insight here. What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? It's an interesting line, don't you think? That phrase, a dead dog, in this context, in this time, was that he had said things against the king that were treasonous and worthy of death. He had harbored thoughts against the king 
That meant he deserved execution. He knew it. And he assumed he had been found out. What he didn't understand was covenant grace was about to bless him in a way that he couldn't fathom. So the king summons Ziba again because he's not getting through to Mephibosheth. And he says, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. I imagine the first meal that Mephibosheth went to As he goes into the palace, limping on his crutches, and he enters the, 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 the main dining area, and up in the front would have been a dais, an elevated dais with a large table. David would have been in the middle. He would have had Joab, his commander of the armies, and, and everyone else sitting to, uh, next to him, and he's saving a spot for Mephibosheth at his table. And can you imagine, just put yourself in Mephibosheth's place. Why am I here? Am I sport in the middle of the room tonight? Are they just going to mock me? And I imagine him dragging his legs, coming up on that platform, and knowing guys the way I do, I could hear like a Joab going, just loud enough for Mephibosheth to hear, what is he doing here? He does not deserve to be here. He does not deserve to sit at the king's table. We fought with David. We fought for David. We bled with David. We lost good friends fighting against that guy's grandpa. He should not be here. And I can imagine Mephibosheth going, I really shouldn't be here. And then as he comes and sits next to David, I like to imagine David reaching forward and grabbing a plate of these choice meats that Mephibosheth has not eaten for a long time. And he, he turns towards Mephibosheth. And he hands him and offers him the food off the plate. As he does so, his robes come up just enough to see what? Scars. It's in that moment that Mephibosheth goes, ah, that's why I'm here. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to sit at the king's table. I don't deserve to eat of this bounty. I don't deserve all of the wealth and the land that David has given me. The only reason I am here and the only reason I'm receiving this is because of the covenant my dad cut with David. I also like to imagine after that, as Mephibosheth would have limped through the palace, at some point, customs would have dictated that David would have put on display Prince Jonathan's robe, his tunic, and his belt. Can you imagine if you were Mephibosheth and you were standing in front of that frame that was your dad and you hadn't seen him since you were five and going, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm receiving all of this goodness and all of this blessing because of the covenant that my dad established with David. It's interesting when we think of covenant. 
that how does an unholy human like me ever establish a covenant with God? Amos 3 reminds how can two walk together if they are not in agreement? How in the world could David and the household of David walk in covenant with the household of Saul when they were diametrically opposed on so many levels? The answer is because there was one person inside the household of Saul whose heart was radically different than Saul's. That was Jonathan. And as we look at how do we enter into this relationship with God via covenant, how do we walk together with God? Well, we really can't. We would be like Abram, right? If we went through the covenant pieces, we'd screw up within the next 30 seconds after establishing the covenant, and then death would be what we deserved. As Mephibosheth knew, it's all that he deserved. But you see, God did something profound in the ultimate covenant that brought about grace for me and you, is that he said, I'm, there's one inside of the household of Adam whose heart is radically different. There was one who came into the household of Adam who was sinless, perfect, flawless, and that's Jesus. So the father is able to establish a covenant with the household of Adam through the son. And that covenant took place on Calvary, on a cross, where the son was the blood of the covenant. The son was the sacrifice of the covenant. And the blessing that you can enjoy of the covenant that's between the father and son is yours if you're a part of the family. So how do you become a part of the family of God? Well, that is salvation. That is your new birth. That is by being born again. Now you are born into the family of God and you receive the covenantal blessings between father and son by virtue of your new birth. Nothing that you do, there's nothing you could ever do to deserve the abundance and the beauty and the bounty that God has for you between the father and the son. And the way David asked if there was anyone in the household of Saul that he could bless for Jonathan's sake, I can hear the father saying, is there anyone in the household of Adam that I can bless for Jesus' sake? And the Holy Spirit, who was always on the move, always pursuing you like the hound of heaven, is saying, here's one, this one, let's bless this one. Here's one, here's one to bless. We step into this beautiful covenant of grace, not by our own perfection, not by our, our ability to tithe and to show up and to do Christianity well. We experience all of this goodness in spite of all of that because of what Jesus did. Everything we experience in this life is about Jesus. That is the heartbeat of the fourfold gospel. Jesus is your salvation. Your holiness, that's Jesus. Your healing, that's Jesus. You don't have a formula to get saved. No, you have Jesus. And if you have Jesus, you have salvation. If you have Jesus, you have sanctification. You are holy. Hebrews 10, 14 says, By one sacrifice, God has made perfect forever those whom he is making holy. By one sacrifice, you are in Christ. You are sanctified. And you are becoming sanctified. In Christ, you have capacity for healing and life and beauty. It is 
all about Jesus. He is the epicenter and the centerpiece of civilization. He is what everything is about, and that is what the CNMA is all about, focusing on the supremacy of Jesus Christ, trying to stay out of the theological weeds which cause division in the Christian world so that we stay focused on the thing that matters, Jesus, because we are surrounded out here in Hillsborough by thousands of people that are in desperate need of Jesus. We need to be about depopulating hell so the kingdom of God expands and that flourishing can come to this entire region. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. Uh, that's what we remember at 50 years. Why do you exist? We don't just need another church. There's a lot of churches. What we need are churches that are spirit-empowered, focused solely on Jesus, and are committed to Jesus and making sure people meet him, not getting stuck on theological or second and third tier issues. Stay f- we stay focused on what we, what we need. Now, as I bring this to wrap, Scotty, and turn this back over to you, we think about how do we stay in that covenantal graced place. Well, 1 John 1, 9 reminds us that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? You ever wondered why faithful and just? Why did Paul say faithful and just, not merciful and graceful? If I confess my sins, he's merciful and graceful, and he'll forgive my sins. Faithful and just are covenant words. They're covenant language. In other words, if you confess your sins because of the covenant that God the Father established with the Son, he has to forgive you because it's about his performance. It's about his faithfulness, not yours, his. If you confess your sins, he forgives you. If you're one of those people like me so many years, I like, I think I'm repenting on this one again. He's probably done forgiving me. No. When we repent and confess, he has to forgive you. If he doesn't forgive you, you can get a lawyer and take him to court and you will win because it's covenant language. It's legal language. <laughs> I used to think <laughs> back in the day that you know, we have the accuser of the brethren, and so he'd go before the father and say, hey, Monty screwed up yet again. And then I used to think of Jesus as my Perry Mason. That just aged me a little. Um, Jesus was my Perry Mason. He'd be my defense attorney, and the, the Satan would say, here's what Monty's done, and, and then Jesus would go up there and he'd say, yeah, yeah, but he's a work in progress. He's doing better. I got him on a rehab program right now. <laughs> when I finally understood covenant, though, I realized Jesus didn't have to say anything. He didn't have to say anything because I was in him. A trivia question and then a wrap. What are the only five man-made things that you will find in heaven? There's going to only be, and Starbucks is definitely not one. But what are the only five man-made things in heaven? What do you think? The wounds of Christ. Hands. Feet. Side. I don't know, but did you ever wonder the way I did? That when Jesus rose from the dead and burst out 
the tomb. Why didn't the father eliminate the scar? Because they're covenant scars. Isaiah says you are written on the palm of the Lord's hand. You're written on the wounds of Christ. When the accuser of the brethren accuses you to the Father or me, Jesus doesn't need a grand old defense. All he has to do to Satan is say, hey, speak to the hand, right? (laughs) Because on the hand are scars, covenant scars, the wounds of Christ. This is our message, grace. Grace will carry a rise church into the next 50 years and beyond. Grace and the centrality of Jesus is why this church was planted. Covenant grace extended to your community is what your community needs. Thank you for working so hard in this reaccreditation process. I am so proud of you for doing the hard work of saying we need a mid-course correction. So let me pray over you. And thanks for allowing me to be with you in this amazing celebration today. Jesus, we love you, we need you. We ask that you would not only help us understand that the grace that we have received is all of you, but would you help us purposely try to lead our lives in our neighborhoods with the posture of the very grace that we have received to those who also don't deserve it around us. May we not withhold grace but may we be conduits of that grace because at the foundation of our ability to be graceful followers of you is the covenant that all of our life, our eternity rests upon. Thank you for the life of your son, Jesus. Thank you for the grace you have showered on us. May we bless others with it too as we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. 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 Thank you. Yeah, a round of applause for, for that amazing word. We're going we're gonna to wrap up. So we're going to wrap up with some worship. And we're going to, uh, there's cake and things that we're going to, some games we're going to do in a little minute. But I wanted to do a couple of things just before we worship. So, um, so with, with some of what Monty was sharing, it, it sparked some thoughts inside. Uh, and particularly, I mean, for some people in the room, you look around, you don't know. Uh, who has been a faithful part of what God has been doing here for a long time. Um, so, so here's what I want to do. If you, everyone in the room, I, just, I would like you to stand up just for a moment, if you may, if you can and if you may. And then um, I want us for a moment just to acknowledge, like with a church like this, you need, you need the people that have been here a long time and you need the people that are new, right? We can't just have the same group of people, so we're all important. So if you have come to this church in the last year, Sit down. Okay, have a little look around. If you have come to this church since I became the pastor, so 2020, have a little seat. If you have been a part of this church for 10 years, sit down. If you've been a part of the church for 20 years, take a seat. If you've been a part of the church for 30 years, have a seat. And we know Carol is probably sitting down now. She's watching online. 
If you've been a part of the church for 40 years, have a little seat. And then have a look. There's some people here. Well, let's do 45. 46. 47. 48. 49. Look at that. Um, this is, yeah, thank you, Kathy. Thank you, John and Amy. Thank you, Bill. Um, thank you, Dennis. Thank you. Yeah, they're. We exist because some of those people were faithful 50 years ago to hear God's call to have an Alliance Church here in Hillsborough. And we're still here because the rest of you have responded to God's call to come and be a part of what we're doing. So thank you for what you planted and thank you all of you for helping carry that legacy forward. You can sit down. Now, that was part one. Part two, what I want to do is, as, as Monty was talking about, covenant and